Gentlemen, it's great to see you this morning. Hope you had a great summer. I sure did. And it's good to return and get ourselves back together to study a very important book of the Bible. Uh, for those of you who are with us for the first time, let me just lay out the ground rules. There are none. Uh, <laughs> this is the jungle. Welcome. Uh, you, can, uh, you don't have to believe anything to be here. You don't have to agree with the speaker. You don't have to agree with the guy sitting across from you. In fact, we have a little disagreement in this room. It makes it a little bit more interesting. Once we start agreeing with each other on everything, it gets to be too boring in here. So if uh, we get to be agreeing too much, we need to bring some people in who will disagree with us. So if you're here and you're not sure you're going to agree with everything, that means you are the kind of person we want to be here. So we welcome you. We're made up of all kinds of uh, religious backgrounds. Uh, probably most of the people in this room have a Christian background and probably would say they're Christians, but there's some that are not. And uh, we like it that way. Uh, there are some Methodists in here. You can always tell the Methodists. I won't go into how you can tell. I'll be talking about that in a minute. Uh, we got some Presbyterians here. By the way, Bill Balknight said that what made him such a good Methodist was his Presbyterian mother. And I said what made me good a pre- good Presbyterian was my Methodist mother. So uh, we all, we're all intermarried here. Uh, we have Baptists and Christian Church and Episcopalians, Roman Catholics and Orthodox and all the rest. We like all those different opinions, which means that since I'm a Presbyterian, sometimes I'll say some things that sound very Presbyterian to people in this room. And that's quite all right. Uh, we don't mean to offend anybody. We're just going to... Praise the Lord, pass the gunpowder, and let's have at it. Uh, one, our, our view of pluralism and different opinions getting together is that people ought to be able to express their opinions, starting with the one who has the microphone. <laughs> so let's just go at it. Don't worry about it. Uh, we, we trust that everybody will get something out of it. One thing that I know you get out of it is you enjoy sitting at the table with, with friends. If the guys at your table aren't your friends right now, they will be uh, by the end of uh, Amen. Uh, and every once in a while, you will need someone to just put your head on their shoulder, get a little snooze. But feel free to do that. Just ask permission ahead of time. That will be fine. No snoring. One of our rules is no snoring allowed. Guys, we have been studying all kinds of books of the Bible, and that's what we're studying is the Bible. That, that book is the bestseller and one of the least read books <laughs> in everybody's home library. So we pull it off the shelf. Everybody's got one. We pull it off the shelf. We don't necessarily go through and look at all the pictures, but we're trying to look at some of the text in there and figure out what it means. And we're confident that it means something and that it's very, very important for us. In fact, we think that the Bible has in it everything a guy really needs that's important. Not everything you need to know how to brush your teeth or get up in the morning or do your job, but everything that's important. Everything that's important, really important, we think, is addressed in the Scriptures. So that's the reason we like to look at that book. That book claims to be... Get this, the Word of God. Uh, one, one scholar I like says the Bible is God preaching. That's kind of the essence of what it is. So uh, we believe it's important because it is the way in which God communicates information about himself and about how we can know him authoritatively and finally. It's in the book. And that's what the book claims for itself. The reason we believe that book is Jesus believed it, and he was very rigorous about it. He said not an iota will be taken away from the Word of God, but it'll all be established. And he said, I came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So we take the Bible seriously. We think there's a lot to be gleaned from it. And I trust that uh, if you hang with us this year, that you will find uh, every week something that you take out of here and you put it on the street. If I'm not addressing what you're facing on the street, I want you to tell me. My email is this, Wilson, two L's in Wilson, at... To the number two, numeral two, 
PC. Wilson at 2pc.org. Feel free to let me know, hey, I wish you'd address this, or I almost fell asleep this morning, or, you know, I wish you hadn't said that, I was offended when you said it, or whatever. Let the, let the good times roll. Let me know what you're thinking. Uh, I won't be offended at it, I promise. And when I come back and address your question, I won't reveal who gave me the question. I'll keep you anonymous. Probably. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, no, I will. But uh, give, me, give me your questions, any concerns you have, uh, anything about it, and we'll go from there. Hey, I just want to pile on here for a minute on something that was said, I believe, a moment ago about halftime. Or maybe it wasn't said, but I'd like to say it. You see this thing on your, on your, uh, your tables? This is a cool thing. Uh, some of you are right at the halftime of your life. A number of you are late in the fourth quarter by looking at you. But some of you are uh, <laughs> just teasing. Don't take it personally. Um, some of you are getting right at, right at that halftime moment when you begin to think, you know, should I really make a major shift in what I'm doing in my life, including my work life? I mean, everything about my life. And it's good to assess all the time in our lives, but halftime has become a very popular time to assess. This is going to be a summit from 8 o'clock in the morning to 1.15. This is no small commitment. Half a day. Uh, it looks like it's next Wednesday. Uh, and it's right here, Second Presbyterian Church. It's being sponsored by a bunch of other folks. Uh, so uh, th- these are folks who have written on this matter, you know, Bob Buford and others, and it's going to be a citywide summit. Why don't you take a good look at that? And if you've been thinking about how to spend the second half of your life, I think this summit will really help you out. If you have more questions about it, Mike Gatliff, who is on our pastoral staff, He's involved in this whole thing, and he's going to be at the back at a table at the end of the, of the Amen session. So stop by and talk to him about it and get your questions answered. And if you want to register, you can fill out this thing right here, and you can either leave it on your table or drop it off at that table at the back. Now, you'll notice uh, that there are discussion questions that are handed out. Here's what these are for. I'll do this every week, and it's a way in which... Um, it's meant to help you apply what we're studying on Thursday morning in a more personal and more rigorous way in your life, especially uh, for use in small groups. It was mentioned a moment ago that will help you organize next week into small groups. I hope you'll take that seriously. Some of you have groups. Some of you have been meeting with guys for a long, long time. And if you'd like to have discussion questions coming out of uh, the lecture on Thursday morning, these will be provided for you just as these are on the text today. And I encourage you to take a look at those and spend some time talking with other guys about it. As a matter of fact, I would say this. If you're in Amen in this session and you're in a small group, you'll probably find that the things that are going to change your life the most are in the small group. That's just the way it works. When you get into a group where you're really talking substance and you can share your lives together, you're going to open yourself up to change even more than being in here and studying the Bible together in a large group where I'm doing all the talking. Uh, I'm trying to anticipate your questions, but I don't hear your questions. I think I hear them, but uh, I'm not hearing them from your mouth. So I'm guessing at what your questions are, but in a small group, you really know what they are. So I encourage you to think about that. If you don't have a group of guys that you know of you'd like to study with or if nobody likes you, uh, we'll, we'll help you. Uh, we'll put you into some small groups where guys are forced to like you, and it'll work out just fine. Hey, let's, let's, uh, what we're studying is standing firm in the faith. It's a study in First and Second Peter, and you can turn in your Bibles. And by the way, the only text we've got, we changed this through the years, is just this uh, Reformation, Spirit of the Reformation, study of the Bible. Some of you say, I don't believe in the Reformation. I'm not a Reformed Christian. I'm just, 
I don't know what that's all about. Don't even worry about it. Uh, what this will show you is basically what Presbyterians believe. So we use a study Bible that's got some helpful theological notes and some good maps and references, cross-references in it. And no matter whether you agree with us or not, you'll find a lot of help in here. It's got an introduction to First Peter in it that just gives you a quick summary of what the epistle is about. Helps you get historical context, literary context, find out a little bit about the author, when it was written, what the circumstances were. That helps you understand why that book was written and helps us understand the meaning for our own day. So we'll be using this text. If you don't have one, I encourage you to pick one up. I don't know if we're selling them back here or at the bookmark here in this building or elsewhere, but you can pick it up. And I'll, I'll just refer to page numbers, you know, if we all, since we all will have the same pagination, and that can be helpful too. Standing firm in the faith is a really, really important principle. That's the reason that we want to spend the whole year on it. One of the things that really wipes guys out is they make a start in a given direction on something, and then they begin to lose their will. They, they sort of lose their determination. They lose their endurance. They lose their perseverance. And they begin to slide off. And that is not a 21st century problem. That's an ancient problem. And that's the reason that in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, you find so many of the, the letters and the books of the Bible in the New Testament being written to encourage you to keep your head straight forward, keep your hands on the plow, and keep moving. For example, Hebrews. You know, this complicated text in Hebrews. We, we, uh, some of you may have studied that in, in previous years. Uh, you'll find out the major point is just don't fall off the, don't fall off the wagon. Stay on there. Keep your head straight forward. Keep moving. Persevere. Jesus said those who persevere to the end will be saved. The book of Revelation that we studied in here a few years ago. What's the big idea? The big idea is persevere. There's a big vision of a new Jerusalem, a glory that is coming. Don't give up. Uh, you know, those who overcome will be blessed over and over again. We get that kind of language in Revelation. And you see this throughout the New Testament. Why? Because guys were not persevering. They would start off in one direction and then they'd fall off the way. Or they'd start growing really strongly and then they'd fall back and, and, and backslide. So... Much of the New Testament is written simply to encourage us to keep on keeping on. And that's a lot of what the Christian life is about. Keep on keeping on. Those who get old and presumptuous end up like Solomon, who had such a great start. You know, when he asked God for wisdom, he didn't ask for treasure, didn't ask for a whole lot of women. Got those later. He just asked for wisdom. And God gave him wisdom. And then later he got all the money and then he got all the women. And he turned his eyes away from the Lord, started thinking he was hot stuff on a stick, and pretty soon he's in big-time trouble. So it's very dangerous for those of you who are older to think, I've been through it, I'm doing okay, you know, I can just kind of slide in there, you know, to my six feet under slot, and I'll be fine. No, it's a, it's a dead race to the very end, all the way till you draw your last breath. And that's what the New Testament is teaching us, and that's what Peter is teaching us big time, and we'll see why. So we want to take this, this idea of standing firm in the faith very seriously because it makes a huge difference. There was a kid who was having trouble with his grades in school and he went to his dad and, and with his report card. And his dad said, son, you remember George Washington? Yes, sir. Son, you remember Abraham Lincoln? Yes, sir. Son, you know Winston Churchill? Yes, sir. Son, you know what they all had in common? No, sir, what? They never gave up. Son, you remember Elmo McCringle? Elmo McCringle? Who's that? See, he quit. 
Uh, and that's the lesson. Those who are God's people, they're going to persevere to the end. And those who don't, they're Elmo McCringle. Let's not have any Elmo McCringles in here. Now, if you look at First Peter itself, turn to chapter 5. And this, of course, is you know, page 2024. And in many books of the Bible, you will actually get an explanation of why those books were written. The writer will tell you his main purpose. And, and you get it here with First Peter. If you look at chapter 5, verse, verse uh, 9, back up to verse 8, he says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Here you go with this language. Standing firm in the faith. Because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. Pop down to verse 12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So he says in verse 10 uh, that we are to uh, be firm and stand steadfast. Or in verse 9, we're to stand firm. He says that we're to stand fast. You get the language? He's saying, I'm writing this to you to encourage you to stand firm. And the first thing that you professed as a follower of Jesus Christ, stand firm in it. And we're going to see how when you decide you're going to stand firm in Christ, that you're going to see some massive changes and blessings taking place in your life through standing firm. Standing firm is not static life. It's a very dynamic life. You can't stand firm unless you do have a dynamic life. And you're going to see that by standing firm in Christ, you are going to be a dynamic person. And we'll talk about it and we'll see in First Peter how this all works out. Now, if you turn over to Second Peter, chapter 1, you'll see that there's a similar purpose in Second Peter. Both epistles. Now, both of these are being written late. First Peter, probably mid-60s. Second uh, Peter, likewise, uh, mid to late 60s. So they're written right at the beginning of the persecutions of Nero in Rome. And Peter is writing from Rome. Well, guess what then? Of course he's talking to people about standing firm. Because they're falling off to the right and left all over the place, all over the world, especially to the ones he's writing to in Asia Minor. But in First Peter chapter 1, he talks about how we, if you back up in, in verse 5, you'll see that he says, make every effort to add your faith goodness, your goodness knowledge, and so on. And he builds this whole model of the the character of a Christian man. He just builds that whole model. And after he does so, he says, uh, if you possess, verse 8, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, look at this, be all the more eager to make your calling and election Sure, for if you do these things, you will never fall. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So you can see that in both First Peter and Second Peter, the author, Peter, is trying to encourage us to persevere to the end because there are great blessings awaiting us. Now, why is it so important to stand firm to the end? First of all, for your own sake. 
Your standing firm to the end means that you're going to enjoy Christ more. You're going to enjoy the creator of this universe in a personal relationship more. It means that your life is going to be a greater blessing to you. There's actually going to be more satisfaction in this broken world when you persevere according to the truth and according to reality. Uh, so we're certainly encouraged to do so for our own sakes. He says, so then you will never fall. You will never be unwelcomed uh, in eternal dwellings. And uh, secondly, uh, you'll for the sake of others, you will be much more useful to other people if you're if you're a bullseye, if you're a target, if people know who you are, you know, in, in management, one of the key things in leading or managing people is to be predictable. Every one of us has a different personality. Every one of us manages a little differently. But your people that you're managing need to be able to predict your behavior. They need to know what makes you happy and what doesn't make you happy. And it needs to be consistent. The worst thing you can do to your environment is mess it up by being unpredictable. When you throw that kind of uncertainty into your environment, all you get is chaos and confusion and, and, and discouragement. Uh, and people become demoralized. So certainly if you stand firm, you're going to have much greater effect on other people. As I said, a, a big oak tree is nothing other than a little nut that stood its ground. And so, you know, you, if you want to be an oak tree, you've got to figure out, you know, OK, so you're a nut. And just let those roots go down. And pretty soon that little nut becomes an oak tree. So you're going to be much more useful for others. For example, in uh, this uh, in our church, we've been studying Nehemiah on Sunday mornings. And this last week we looked at Nehemiah four. This is where the people of God are, are rebuilding the city of God. I mean, it's a wonderful book of the Bible. And they're rebuilding the walls to protect themselves. And they don't go very far until they run into all kinds of resistance from Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the, you know, the Ammonites and the Ash, people from Ashdod, the future Philistines and so on. They're just, everybody's opposing them. And they're in great danger. And here is what Nehemiah says to them when he's encouraging them. He says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, the great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So Nehemiah says a couple of things. Don't be afraid of them. Fear the Lord. When you fear Him, that will take care of this lesser fear that you've got in your life. So remember Him. He's great and awesome. And then he says, fight for your family. Very interesting. He's saying, if you will stand firm, your family will get a legacy. And I'm saying the same thing to you. It's right in the book. If we stand firm, your children, grandchildren, those who are around you, including your spouses, stand to be blessed greatly. Uh, so you're going to have a greater blessing in your own life and in others. And then, of course, finally, it's for the sake of the glory of God. If you stand firm. Sometimes we don't stand firm because we think we don't have it in us to win the battle. Nobody likes to fight a losing battle. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, don't engage a losing battle. In fact, there's a principle of the just war theory. You don't engage a battle, a war you don't think you can win. So the Bible teaches that. And we don't stand our ground. We start to use other methods other than just living for Christ and trusting in Him because we don't think that living for Christ and trusting in Him is powerful enough to face the exigencies that are in our lives and the necessities and the, the pressures and the problems. And so we go to some other route. We lower our ethical standards or we manipulate people or we disrespect others or we use people because we're trying to accomplish our goal. We don't think that Christian character and the power of the Holy Spirit is sufficient. But when you stand firm, 
in what Christ says he's given you to live life, you are going to glorify God. And as a matter of fact, you're going to begin to see it. Let me ask you to turn back to a text that really demonstrates this on page 119. This is Exodus 14. And here the children of Israel are, are crossing the Red Sea. They're getting ready to. And they're terrified. Moses has taken them out of their slavery and he started them on the march. And you remember what happens? They get to the Red Sea and they're stuck. They have the sea in front of them and a bunch of bloodthirsty Egyptians with chariots and swords and spears behind them. And they're starting to get ticked and afraid. And Moses gives them a little piece of advice that I think will be very important for us. Look at verse 13. Moses answered the people. Because if you look back in 12, they say, look what these people say. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They're already starting to complain. Church people, of course, these days don't do that. Here they are. They're, they're hard. They're not even out of Egypt yet. And they're already complaining. Yeah, I'd rather, I'd rather be a slave than die with you in the desert. Moses, you're just taking us out here to starve us to death. Get us killed by these people. We'd be better serving them as a slave. They're already saying they, they prefer slavery than to God's freedom. Why? They're terrified. They don't think that what they've got is powerful enough to face these well-equipped, well-trained Egyptian forces. Humanly, it makes all kinds of sense why they'd be afraid and why they would complain against their political leaders. It makes all kinds of sense. Look what Moses' answer is. Verse 13, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. That's a refrain in the Bible. Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Look at verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Gentlemen, that is what is being said by Peter in this book. The Lord will fight for you. All you've got to do is be a little nutty and stand your ground in a dynamic way, as we'll, as we'll discuss this year. And you will see the power of God working in your life. Not your power. The power of God working through you. If you'd like to be His instrument, you're going to have to stand firm. If you get afraid and you start using other methods to accomplish the goals and ambitions you have in your mind, and if you think God's methods are not going to get you there, so you're going to go some other method, you're not going to see the power of God in your life or the benefit of God's power in other people's lives around you, nor for His glory. But if you'll stand firm, you will. And for sure, one day when Jesus Christ comes back, the reward for your standing firm in Him is going to be beyond your imagination. You do not have a mind or imagination big enough to ideate and conceptualize what that reward is going to be like for those who stand firm in Christ. This is the kind of thing that Peter is giving us in his epistle. Now, what normally causes us to waver? Well, you, can, you can see several things listed here. Sufferings and trials. And, of course, we see that throughout the lives of God's people in the Scriptures and today. Hopelessness. Just like we said, when you think that the methods that God has given you are not adequate to face the challenges ahead of you and you get hopeless and cynical, uh, you tend to waver. Temptations. When the world is alluring you and saying, hey, come on over here. I've got something very special for you. So your sex life's not so hot. Hey, 
over here with this woman. She's a pro. She knows how to do it. Unlike your wife. You get all these allurements and temptations that throw you off the track. Pride, which is the first major problem of fallen humanity right from Genesis chapter 3. And it's been with us ever since. It causes us to waver. It doesn't help us. It hurts us. The devil himself, in case you didn't believe it, let me tell you, he's alive. He's not particularly well, but he is alive. And he is ticked. And he is more ticked since Jesus Christ came the first time because now he has complete warning. The man's coming back again is going to clean house. And he is really roaring mad. And you saw it in the end of Peter there. He'd walk around seeing whom he may devour. He'd be very glad to devour you. Just offer yourself. You know, Peter's saying, watch out. He's real. He's out there. He likes to eat people. Uh, false teaching. We'll pick this up particularly in Second Peter. The real danger of false teaching is not that it makes you mad that people aren't uh, subscribing to the truth. It's that it leads people astray. It actually hurts them. It has relational impact. It even has eternal impact. False teaching does. And it can lead us astray. And lack of discipline. And you pick this up in Second Peter as well, particularly. So all of these things normally cause us to waver the things we've got to watch out for. If we are going to be men who stand our ground. And who are going to see the glory of God in our lives now and later. Now, what strengthens us? Well, obviously, some of the opposites of these things. The hope of glory. You know, as John Owen, the old Puritan, used to say, you know, a, a, a trip across the sea is a very difficult thing. But if you've been told of a beautiful island where you're going, where there are treasures waiting for you and a wonderful life, well, that rough voyage is a whole lot easier. And so it is in life. Life is tough and then you die. Uh, but if you know at the end of life, uh, God is storing up something for you, then the, then the pilgrimage makes even more sense. The fear of God. We need to learn to reverence Him. Understand who He is. And we'll see this in First Peter. Uh, the fear of God. The grace of God. Gentlemen, if, if I can't convince you this year that in the midst of all your sins and failures and miserable weaknesses and all the ugly, terrible, no good things you've done, that God loves you no less then he loved his son, Jesus Christ. If I can convince you of that, I'll be a happy man. And you know what? So will you. If you walk out of here at the end of this year convinced that God's grace is big enough to love a big sinner like you, if you become convinced that he loves you in the same way that he loved his servant David, who just committed a few little sins like adultery and uh, murder and you know, a few things like that and not trusting the Lord... And David was a man, a man after God's own heart. But why? Not because of David, but because of the grace of God. And the grace of God is what will move you dynamically to stand firm in your faith day after day. If you think you've got to earn it, I don't think you're going to make it. Because if you think you're going to earn it, pretty soon it's going to occur to you, I'm failing. And you are. Big F. F minus. And you ain't doing so good. And so you give up out of discouragement. But if you understand, you get an A+, plus, not because of your performance today, but because of the performance of somebody else who died in your place, paid all your sins, lived a righteous life, and you get credit for it simply by trusting in Him. Hey, this is something I can live for. I'm a winner. And you are a winner in Christ. So you've got to have the grace of God if you're going to be someone who stands firm. The love of the brothers. That's the reason we're here. That's the reason we don't have little one-on-one private study Bible, uh, Bible studies alone. We do, but that's not all we do. We also get together. We need to get together. Because it's going to happen to you if you hang in here. Several times this year, 
You're going to come off a week that stinks. And it stinks so bad, you don't think there's any answer for it. You're going to come in here and you're going to hear something from the Scriptures. That you're going to, it's going to begin to... The light bulb's going to start to go on. And before you walk out the door, a brother in this room is going to come and say, Hey, how are you doing? And you're going to tell him and you all are going to sit down and he's going to care for you. And he may even pray for you. But he'll certainly be concerned about you. And he may even be able to help you. You're going to find the love of the brothers makes a huge difference in the way that you stand firm. And you, stand, you can't stand, stand firm really without them. The Word of God. We've got to have, you know, the Word of God, it says, is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It guides us. We're in the dark, says the Bible. We are in the dark unless God sheds a light. And He has. That's the reason we come to study the Bible. It's going to shed light on the way and show us how we can walk, how we can stand firm, what we can do to make a difference. Faith in Christ. The gift of faith. And we'll talk about how you can receive that. When you're really trusting in the One who made you and the One who redeems you, and we'll show you how to do that and what difference it makes in your life. Boy, that'll take care. That'll strengthen us. Humility before God and men. You're not going to be able to stand firm if you think you're doing it on your own strength. You lose right from the beginning because you can't do it on your own strength. Therefore, you've got to have humility, which means you recognize you're not as hot as your press release says you are. Uh, you know, it's something considerably less than that. And the only way you can learn is if you humble yourself before God and before others, because God teaches us through other people. The power of the Spirit. We're going to have to learn how to live by the Spirit, not by your enzymes, hormones, but living by the Spirit, not by testosterone. There's a big difference. And spiritual discipline. We'll talk about some of those things. How can you begin to put some disciplines in your life that will help you to stand firm? If some of you are very disciplined, some of you are not. And we all have different starting places by nature. And we'll learn how we apply our own personalities to our own spiritual discipline. Sufferings and trials. Isn't this ironic? We started the list of things that cause discouragement or cause us to waver with sufferings and trials. And now look at it. At the end of what strengthens us, we're saying, you know what? Sufferings and trials actually in Christ don't cause you to waver. They cause you to stand firm. Very interesting. And we're going to see how by the grace of God, He takes the most difficult things in your life and those are the very things He uses to make you more the man that you want to be before God. Well, the interesting thing is, if you look at the outline that we have for you today, uh, it just outlines First and Second Peter, this sheet right here. Uh, you'll see that the whole outline of First Peter and Second Peter is about how we can stand firm. If you're going to stand firm, first of all, first of all, you've got to find solid ground. And that's what we're going to talk about these first five weeks. How can you find solid ground? Secondly, you've got to take a stand on that solid ground. And we're going to see for six weeks how you do that. And then you have to learn to handle your adversaries. As we said, Nehemiah, you get to chapter 4, and you're into big-time adversaries. Well, Peter is talking about some big-time adversaries, and we'll take four weeks to talk about that. If you're going to stand firm, you've got to learn how to have lead other men instead of being led and misled by them. You need to be led by good men, not misled by less than good men. And we need to learn how to lead others, and we'll talk about in chapter 5 of Peter how to do that. When you get to Second Peter... We're going to see that if you're going to stand firm, you're going to have to be very intentional about it. You're not going to stand firm by accident. You know, some people, here's the way they hit bullseye. Take an arrow, shoot up in the air, hits the ground, go around it, and then draw a circle around it. And then you hit bullseye. But, you know, if you aim for nothing, that's what you're going to get. So we want to aim 
for the best in your life. And the Bible will show us how to do that. And then you're just going to have to post a guard, lastly. And we'll see how you post your guards in your life to ward off the possibility of taking you off the track of maximum blessing in your life. So that's the idea. And let me quote what Robert Layton from the 17th century said about 1 Peter. This excellent epistle, full of evangelical doctrine and apostolical authority, is a brief and yet very clear summary, both of the consolations and instructions needed for the encouragement and direction of a Christian in his journey to heaven, elevating his thoughts and desires to that happiness, and strengthening him against all opposition in the way, both that of corruption within and temptations and affections without. There's a great summary of what First Peter should do for all of us. Now, let's move to the first point. We've got about 17 minutes to handle it. In order to stand firm, we need to find solid ground. Francis Schaeffer said that the problem with our culture is that we have our feet firmly planted in thin air. If you're going to be firmly planted, you better be planted in something solid. So we've got to find solid ground, and that's the purpose of this first section of 1 Peter. Now, in order to find solid ground, we need to know the truth about the truth. How do you know what the truth is? We're going to talk about that briefly today. We need to know the truth about ourselves. Don't give me a bunch of baloney. Don't flatter me. Tell me what I am and what my needs are. Let's have a clear diagnosis. I go to the doctor. I don't want a bunch of flattering. I want to know the truth. If I'm healthy, tell me. If I'm not, tell me. And if I'm not, let's get a prescription going and fix this thing. Flattery will do me no good. And the Bible believes the same thing spiritually about you. You want to know the truth about yourselves. You can't stand firm if you don't know what you're dealing with. Thirdly, and most importantly, we need to know the truth about God. Who is He? What does He desire of us? What is His character? What has He done? And how has He interpreted His acts? It's not a matter of His getting into my story. I've got to get into His story. If He is God then it's more important for me to, to get into his agenda than for him to get into mine. Fourthly, we need to know the truth about our sufferings. What is the meaning of them? And so many guys get thrown way off the path and waste years of their lives because they never learn to interpret sufferings properly. They never learn to use sufferings properly. They use them in just the opposite way that the devil would love to use to discourage you and get you off your track. We're going to take a hard look at that. Then we need to know the truth about our salvation. What is it? How does it work? How do I accomplish it? How do I receive it, rather? Uh, how, how do I live it out? Because we're, we've been saved, we're being saved, and we're going to be saved. And some of you haven't experienced that to begin with, and we want you to experience it. And we'll talk about how you can experience what that is to be delivered from the bondage of evil in this world and be set free to know God. Now... In the time we have, we're going to look at this. We want to know the truth about the truth. Look at 1 Peter 1. We are now actually, gentlemen, studying the Bible. It is now, we now officially begin. 1 Peter 1, in fact, just 1a. We're going to look at uh, six words. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You say, come on, Wilson, give me a little bit more than that. Hey, no, let me tell you something. This is worth stopping over. We need to stop right here and know the truth about the truth. When Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is making a massively important statement about how he is to be heard. And that's what I want us to gather this morning. How are we to hear this text? We're going to study it this year. How are we to think about this? Is this going to be the truth or is it going to be just another opinion 
like some other great book that we may read. And there are lots of great books. Are we going to throw this First Peter in all the rest of the great books? Or are we going to treat First Peter differently? Peter says, if you're, going to, if you're going to understand this book at all, you're going to treat it differently. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You don't have books on your shelves that begin, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. you got this book that begins that way. And that means it's to be listened to very differently. Now, first of all, we're going to notice the truth is received and conveyed by ordinary men. Peter. Peter is very ordinary. As a matter of fact, <laughs> you might say Peter is subordinary. <laughs> and this is a great encouragement to us. Uh, just in brief, because our time is brief. In brief, do you not find it massively ironic that a book about standing firm <laughs> is being written by Peter? <laughs> now, let me tell you why this is massively ironic. Uh, if you'll look with me, uh, Peter, uh, uh, you know, and, and we do not seem to be qualified for this task. I mean, this is the first thing that's so obvious. This whole letter is about standing firm. And as soon as he says, Peter, you got, well, forget that. He doesn't know anything about it. Unless you have read the whole story of Peter. If you read half the story of Peter, you say, this guy is massively disqualified to even talk to me about this. Talk about the world's greatest failure. Peter was, first of all, culturally parochial. Uh, he was from Bethsaida. He moved to Capernaum. In fact, if you visit Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee today, you'll, you'll see the ruins of his, of his house. I won't go into why we, we think we know exactly where that house is. Jesus visited there over and over again. He, he lived around the lake. He was a fisherman. And he really didn't get out that much. He just didn't. He was very provincial, very parochial. He was even a racist. He didn't think very much at all of any other nation or any other people. And he was kind of a fisherman redneck. You know? I'm, I'm sorry, that's kind of the, the, way, the way it goes. And, and furthermore, he was uneducated. Later on in his life, when he made an appearance before some educated people, they made note of him. There's an uneducated man. How <laughs> do you like that? You go down to city council, make a few comments in your speech, and the city council is murmuring as you leave. There goes an uneducated man. Uh, that's what they said about Peter. He was culturally parochial. He had to be taught to cross uh, uh, cultural and ethnic barriers in a big-time way in Acts chapter 10 later on. He was academically uneducated. This guy is not your candidate to be an all-star uh, quarterback. Uh, thirdly, he was morally weak. In, in, first of all, he was very loud. He made his weakness very well known. He was loud. He, he says in Matthew chapter 14, when Jesus is walking on the, the lake, hey, I want to walk too. Uh, yeah, so then he goes out, give him credit, you know, he's set foot on the lake and then he starts to sink. <laughs> well, what do you think, Peter? And Jesus says to him, you know, don't look at the winds and the waves, look at me, you know. And so Peter is very loud and boisterous. In John 6, actually he makes a good statement. Jesus says, are you all going to leave? And he says, you have the words of eternal life. You know, we can't leave you. And so Peter has got a loud mouth, but he's also, secondly, proud. And you will find him uh, constantly making these ridiculous statements. Uh, for example, right after Jesus, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up. You know, he's got the loud mouth. He says, and he makes this unbelievably 
Beautiful statement. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I think Jesus was even stunned. <laughs> and Jesus, Jesus said, Simon Barjona, or that means Simon, son of John. Simon Barjona, let me tell you something. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. In other words, Simon, Galilean redneck, uneducated, you didn't come up with that on your own. <laughs> he says, the Spirit has revealed this to you. My Father has revealed it to you. So Jesus makes this huge statement about Peter. And then he says, and Peter, on this rock, and of course the name Peter means rock, on this rock I will build my church. You know, Peter's going, well, <laughs> after all. <laughs> and, then, and then later on, right after that, Jesus then says, he teaches them about how he's going to go to the cross. Now listen to this great speech of Peter. Two words. Never or no Lord. Ladies, I mean, gentlemen, that is an oxymoron. It's like army intelligence. It's, you, you can say no, you can say no, and you can say Lord. But no, Lord, they don't go together. Peter, somehow, put them together. Here's Jesus' next speech. Get behind me, Satan. Peter was just flying up here in all of his pride. He's doing so well. Oh, I'm an instrument of the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, I'm an instrument of Satan in the course of about five minutes. Very proud man. And he was, he was, he was a wavering man. And of course, in Matthew 26, when Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed and you'll deny me. And Peter says, all these others may deny you, but not me, Lord. Hello, Peter. You're the very one who's going to do it. Peter trusted in himself. He was a very proud man. Morally, he was very weak. He thought of himself as being very strong and blustering. But he was actually very weak and insecure. And then he was in a cloud. Matthew 17. We have the transfiguration. Here Jesus, before His resurrection, shows the radiance and brilliance of His being when He turns into this pure white being. And the guys had been sleeping, as they often did, you know, Peter, James, and John. And they kind of wake up. And they go, my stars, you know, what is that? And Peter says, Lord, this is, this is Wilson translation. He says, Lord, this is really cool. Let's build a booth to memorialize this. And Jesus, in his response, you can see, he just basically dismisses Peter like, oh, gosh. You know, Peter would have made a great trinket salesman in Jerusalem you know, in the 21st century. And so Peter is just in a cloud. He, you know, in John 13, when Jesus was washing feet, Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. Like, I'll never let you do that for me. Take the role of a servant in my life. You'll not wash my feet, Jesus. And Jesus said, well, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Peter then says, well, I'll wash my feet, my head, my hands. Jesus said, cool it, Peter. All you need is your feet will be adequate. Uh, Peter is just, you know, a mess. And then, of course, worst of all, he's cowardly. And if you look at that account in Matthew 27 or the account in the other Gospels, you see that even a little, a little maiden can come up to him and scare the living daylights out of him. I never knew the man, he says, and he, he curses, takes an oath, and says he never knew Jesus. Total failure. And uh, sometimes we feel the same way. We do not seem to be qualified for this task. But notice this, we all have only one qualification. We are friends of Jesus. When Jesus called Peter, you can look at these texts, but especially that John 140, 
uh, two texts. We are called and named by Jesus. Jesus is the one who said to him, Simon, you're now Cephas uh, in Aramaic or uh, Petros in, in Greek. You're the rock. And Jesus named him the rock, I'm sure, in some sense, ironically, calling him the rock. But not completely ironically. Truly. Why? Because Jesus said, on this profession of Peter, that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, I'm going to build my church on that. And later on we're told that God has built His church on the prophets and the apostles, including Peter, but Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And He built on that rock. And so Peter is indeed called the rock. And Jesus predicts the, the ultimate outcome even before Peter goes into failure. And then in John 21, this enormously significant story, and I just encourage you to look at it in John 21. We are forgiven by Jesus. If Peter can be forgiven for denying Jesus three times in his worst moment ever, don't you think that you could be forgiven for denying Jesus in your massive sin that you've committed? Are you so proud as to think that you've got to pay for your sin? Do you think you could do that anyway? Peter, by nature, thought he should. That's the reason that after his denial of Jesus, he just went and wept bitterly and was depressed. But Jesus pursued him. And in John 21, you'll see it. And he says to him three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, I love you, Lord. He said, feed my sheep. Peter, do you really love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. So Jesus reverses the three-time denial with a three-time reaffirmation of Peter's love for Jesus. And the reason is, then Jesus tells him, Peter, basically you are going to persevere to the end. And you will go where you don't want to go. In other words, you'll be martyred. And Jesus tells Peter, you're going to be martyred, which is to say, you are going to die with the profession of faith on your lips. And you are going to die as a faithful man. So Jesus comes back into this this disaster's life, this failure's life, and makes them an A+. Gentlemen, that's exactly what He offers to do for you today. We're the least likely candidates. We, we only need one qualification, that is that we're the friends of Jesus. And then we see that we're developed by Jesus. You can just look at that list of verses there, uh, of sections in Acts. And here you had Peter standing up before thousands, preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the coming of the new age, and their need to repent and be baptized, every one of them, for the forgiveness of their sins. Man, has this guy ever changed? And then by the end of that, when you get to chapter 4, verse 4, he's led 3,000 people to faith in Jesus Christ. This cowardly, denying, total disaster disciple has become one of the greatest preachers of all. And then in chapters 4 and 5, you'll see him before the Sanhedrin. And he says, you tell us, should we obey you or obey God? Woo! Pot shamali! What's gotten into this guy? He has been absolutely radically transformed. And then you find him in Acts chapter 10 defending the Gentile mission. This man who was a racist now proclaims that the love of Christ is for all people and that we stand equally before the cross and the empty tomb. And Peter is preaching to the rest of the church about this. What got into this guy? That's what he wants to tell you. Basically, he's saying, look, if I can stand firm, Surely, God, you'll be able to stand firm. And if God has been able to do something with me, surely He'll be able to do something with you. So Peter 
after looking very unqualified, begins to look very qualified. Now, we just have a few minutes. The truth is a gift of God by revelation. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's such a thing as natural revelation and special revelation. Natural revelation is what you can see about God in the creation through your natural mind. God reveals Himself to you that way. Special revelation is what He gives you for the salvation of your, for your eternal life. And that's through Christ and the Scriptures. And that's what this is. God is revealing the truth through apostles. Peter, he says, an apostle. Now, uh, we will have to pick up on this next time, and we will at this point. But we're going to see that when Peter calls himself an apostle, he's not only a forgiven man who, through his forgiveness and restoration, is able to talk to us from experience, but he is an instrument of God's absolute truth to us and has authority to teach us principally, not just by experience, but to teach us from what he knows from God himself when he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at why that's so significant and why with all the attacks uh, from even higher educational institutions today on that whole idea of apostolic authority and apostolic authorship, it's so important for us to be able to address we're going to see that why that is why this book is going to be the key to our living lives of real men who know how to stand firm in what we believe and what we want to be. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. We thank you for men like Peter, who, like us, has failed tremendously in life and yet who has found the key to restoration, to standing firm on solid ground and enjoying the blessings of God Almighty. We pray that you'll help us in these weeks and months together to become those kinds of men. Through the power of your Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, we ask it. Amen. God bless you guys.